Reagan might be the president who best exemplifies the use of the common ground, but Reagan is not considered one of the very greatest presidents. And the two greatest presidents in American history by the consensus of historians and political scientists are Abraham Lincoln and Franklin Roosevelt. And those two govern not by consensus at all. They govern by the fact that they had overwhelming majorities of their party in Congress. That's H.W. Brands, presidential historian and author of nearly 30 books on U.S. history and biography, the most recent of which is called Reagan, The Life. Today we hear from H.W. Brands about the life of Reagan, as well as his influence on American conservatism and politics. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. In the weeks and months leading up to the 2016 Republican primary, we heard a lot of references to Ronald Reagan. Whether this or that Republican candidate was more or less like Reagan, or was up to the challenge of leading the country in the manner Reagan did. Indeed, since the end of his second term in 1989, Reagan has cast a large shadow over the American presidency. As many historians would put it, for the past 30 years, we've been living in the age of Reagan. H.W. Brands, who is the Jack S. Blanton Chair of History at the University of Texas at Austin, explores the life of this conservative icon in his book, Reagan, The Life. We talk about the book, as well as Brands' early views on the 2016 presidential race. We recorded this interview in February, before either primary was finished, but already Brands was remarking on the new populism that characterized both the left and the right. We also discuss how Brands has managed to write so many award-winning books and still finds time, on the side, to author an entire history of the U.S. in haikus on Twitter. That and more coming up in this episode of Common Ground, in which I'm joined in studio by H.W. Brands and Gleaves Whitney, director of the Howenstein Center. Thanks very much for listening. It is February 19th, Friday, and we're in studio with Gleaves Whitney and H.W. Brands. Professor Brands, thanks very much for joining Gleaves and I this morning. Delighted to be here. One thing I'm hoping to ask you about is your recent book, Reagan, The Life, which has been met by a number of great reviews, including from The Economist. A central question of your book centers on the question of how a guy like Ronald Reagan, who before his presidency was not really considered exemplary in many regards. He was a B-movie actor, uh, a pretty good student from a small town, a smart guy, but not necessarily the smartest guy in the room. How did someone like Reagan not just become president, but completely change the modern right, the Republican Party, and usher in what might be called the age of Reagan? A lot of it had to do with timing. So if Reagan's political views had been put forward 20 years earlier, they wouldn't have found a resonance in the American public. A lot of it had to do with the fact that he was tightly focused. He concentrated on a few things. Throughout his entire political career, he emphasized the need to shrink government at home and to defeat communism abroad. Those were the things he focused on. Everything else was detail. He was highly principled. He was a politician, and he understood what politicians need to do, but he never wandered far from his core principles. When his core principles were not resonating, he accepted the fact that he lost. He ran for president. He tried to get the Republican nomination in 1968. The Republicans weren't ready to hear what he had to say. He tried again in 1976, still a little bit premature, even though he took on a sitting Republican president and alienated many members of the Republican Party induced in doing so. 
He was fortunate in living long enough in good health that he could try again in 1980. By then, he was too old by most standards of political practice. And so he was principled. He kept his eye on these few big issues. He had an engaging personality. His political philosophy was hardly different at all from Barry Goldwater's. But where Barry Goldwater tended to push people away, Barry Goldwater seemed stern. Barry Goldwater lectured the American people. Ronald Reagan drew people in. Ronald Reagan, interesting enough, he's not a particularly warm personality when you got very close to him. But from a distance, he seemed like a nice guy. He told jokes. His sense of humor was really important. He knew what he knew, and he knew what he didn't know. He had very little intellectual self-consciousness. So he would ask questions that to experts seemed the most naive questions. When he had his first meeting with Paul Volcker, chairman of the Fed, he walked in and he said, uh, Mr. Chairman, tell me why exactly we need a Federal Reserve at all. And people who were there said that Volcker almost swallowed his cigar. When he heard this, <laughs> the president of the United States has to be told why there's a Federal Reserve. But Reagan's sense of himself, he was quite self-confident. His focus, his principled character, his personal appeal, he was a great communicator, and that was what he's often called. He could get his message across. He understood that as president, what you really needed to do was to convey a vision to the American people. And if you could get the American people on your side, then you could accomplish a lot. And then, again, some of it was simply a matter of good luck and good timing. If he had come along 15 years earlier, 15 years later, he would not have had the effect he did. Well, that's, that's very interesting. As I pointed out before, some historians and commentators have really called this R is the age of Reagan as opposed to the age of, of FDR before him. Reagan's name is used in many ways as a sort of battle cry by a lot of Republicans. What was it like as an historian to write about such a president, someone who really still commands the much of the national imagination? How did you separate Reagan the speaker and presenter and the conservative icon from, uh, so to speak, the sort of flesh and blood Reagan, the Reagan who, as you say, didn't necessarily let a lot of people get very close to him as a person. Yeah. So the biographer has to look at the individual and what makes the individual tick. And Reagan was an interesting character. I, don't, I didn't find him to be especially complicated. He's been described as an enigma, but we're all enigmas in one way or another. And he wasn't a particularly deep, troubled soul. So there, I don't think that there was a whole lot of deep digging to do there. The question of interest to me as the biographer and I should say the biographer of a president, a president who was successful as he was, was, again, not so much uh, what made him tick, but what made him successful. We mm -hmm. talked about mm -hmm. what made him right. successful just a moment ago as a leader. But that's, that's the important thing about Reagan. I've written about other political figures, other presidents, Theodore Roosevelt, for example. And Theodore Roosevelt would be a ripe subject for biographers, even if he had never been in politics. He was just a very interesting guy. He had a, a very varied life a dramatic life, a dramatic sort of personal career. In some ways with Theodore Roosevelt, the least interesting part of his life was the presidential years. The presidency imposes a certain normality on everybody. In Reagan, it's just the opposite because if Reagan had not been president of the United States, no one would write his biography. Mm. He was not a particularly interesting person that way. But because he was president, because his presidency was as successful as it was by his lights, then he becomes interesting in that regard. I do want to follow this thread because I, I have a number of questions about Reagan and some of the actual 
compromises he made as a yeah. political leader. I do want to ask, I know a lot of our, our listeners and many of your readers would be interested to know a bit about you as a writer. So I want to ask a couple questions about that. You've written a great deal. I think my count is 28 books and counting right now, a number of books you've co-authored. You also have a Twitter, which I do follow and which I noticed, I think about 12 minutes ago you right. posted. Um, you, you post haikus yeah. about American history, which is so unique and interesting. And you post them regularly for the past five years, which is- I got to say something about yes, the haikus. Yes, please, please okay. do. This originated out of a throwaway line I'd been using with students. I teach at the University of Texas. And in the smaller classes, the students write extensive term papers for me. And they do research, they organize them, they outline the whole thing. And I'd been giving this kind of assignment for some years. And I had been proposing to students a template for how they should organize and present their paper. I said, okay, we need this kind of introduction, then break it up into sections, and I'll let you put titles on each of the sections and so on. And then I said, this is a recommendation. I'm not going to require you to do this, that you could, you know, uh, genius makes its own rules. And if you have a brilliant idea, a brilliant paper, you can write it in for me. And I said, you could write this in the form of haikus. Mm. And I'd been saying this for some while when one of the students raised his hand and said, Professor Brands, um, um, have you ever written in haiku? And I really hadn't meant this seriously, so it had never occurred to me to think that one might. But this actually touched a second thought that had been going around in my head. Because I'm a writer and because I'm interested in reaching audiences, not just academic audiences, but general audiences. And I'd observe that people take their reading in different forms. Mm. For example, more and more people read their books actually by listening to books. And if I knew that my books were going to be mostly listened to, I would write them slightly differently. For example, mm. we write paragraphs because its books are presented in visual form. If you're writing for hearing, you don't hear paragraphs. You don't need paragraphs. Anyway, so it just so happened that about the time this question was asked me by my student, have you ever written haikus, Twitter emerged on the world. And I thought, okay, people are messaging in 140 characters. Right. What can you, what kind of message can you convey in 140 characters? And I thought, and I had long been telling students that this is a stock line that you can tell the, you can write the history of the world in 800 words or 8 million words. It's just a matter of detail what you right. include. So these all came together and I thought, haikus, Twitter, uh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to write a history of the United States and it's going to be in Twitter, but in the tweets are all going to take the form of haikus because the 17 syllables haikus fit conveniently into the 140 characters of Twitter. So I started this about four or five years ago. Yeah. And it's still going on. Now, one of the things that I'm a little bit worried about is that I started this primarily to reach my students mm. because five years ago, Twitter was the way they all communicated with each other. Now they've gone long past that. And so I, I don't know um, if I'm going to outrun the technology before I get to the present. But I have to ask a question yeah. about that. I'm sure that you have a great book in waiting. If you put all these together, it would be so novel. I will tell you. I mean, it's a really good question, please. In fact, my editor at Random House has asked me about this, and I've thought about it, and for the moment, I've put the idea aside because if you get a whole book full of haikus, then you're tempted to read them too fast. It's like, I don't want to necessarily liken my work to uh, chocolates, but it's like having a whole box of chocolates. And, you know, I think that haikus are designed so that you read them and you think about them. 
And so if I do this, then what I would do is put them probably in multiple volumes because I'm up to something like 600 now. And I would just do one per page. And so there might be a book of 100 of these. And so this could be a 10-volume history of the United States. Well, and one, one thing that I imagine your readers and especially your students would love about what you what you did in making this, not transition to, but this addition of the use of Twitter and the use of haikus, um, is that it, first, it's a step that not a lot of historians and not a lot of academics would take, which is, let me go in this completely different form, certainly not the form of monograph. Right. And then at the same time, it does give you something really fascinating about history too because of course the haiku I think and I'm not I'm not trained in this um, but the haiku is an image an action and then an image usually and 757 is the syllable yeah. and you you wrote one I, I remember just I don't have it with me but I happened upon it and it was the image of of Native Americans first seeing ships coming right. from Europe and there was something so emotionally resonant and important about that image that I wouldn't have gotten by reading about it in a monograph that I found so enlightening and interesting. I have to imagine that's one of the things that readers would really appreciate about haikus. And I just have one related question. Yeah. You, you write so often and in so many forms and varieties. Do you think of writing as work, as labor, or do you think of it as an itch so to speak, that needs to be scratched, something that you just can't help but do. I wouldn't say that it's something I cannot help doing, but I will say this. I like doing it, and so far people have been willing to pay me for it. Right. So that's a really good deal. This question of writing in different forms. Kingsley Amos once said that any writer worth his salt can write in any genre. And I'm not sure that I can, I mean, I certainly don't consider myself a writer of Kingsley Amos's caliber, but I think that I do consider myself a writer. And... So as a writer, I'm willing to experiment with different genres, and I think that there is value to be learned from trying different genres. And this business of writing haikus is it does make you look at things differently. So as a, an ordinary historian or biographer, I would typically think in chunks of a chapter, chapters. Well, haikus, your chunks are much smaller, but this is a little bit of a – there was a logical direction there because some years ago, I started off writing books with the typical kind of academic length chapters. So there would be 25 to 40 pages in a chapter. But one time, I, I, well, I suffer from writer's envy the way everybody else, every other writer does. And I took note of the fact that James Patterson was selling a zillion copies of books. And so I said, the guy's got to be doing something right. So I read a couple of his books. And the thing that struck me about them immediately was he wrote in short chapters. Mm. And the chapters can be as short as two or three pages. And you get the feeling that you're just flying through this book. Man, things are really happening fast here. And they really are not, especially, but it gives that impression. So I decided I'm not going to write in these 35-page chapters anymore. I'm going to write chapters that might be as short as five pages. And I will tell you, the consistent compliment that I get from readers is, love those short mm. chapters. Because they will often say, and I had this in mind, that So a lot of people who read my books, they're reading it for pleasure on their own time. They read it perhaps before they go to bed. And I can imagine the reader looking, starting a new chapter and saying, oh, my gosh, this is 35 pages long. I'm not even going to start. But if they see this chapter is five pages long, I can read that. And, but then they will tell me I read that and then I read the next one. And, then read. and so before I fell asleep that night, I'd actually read 35 pages, but they wouldn't have done it if it had all come in a single chunk. One last thing on this is that – as a writer, 
If you know you're going to write in these chunks, then you develop a kind of pacing. Something has to happen in every chapter. So there's a little bit of that James Patterson that does creep in because you have to have a justification for this chapter. And if the chapters are short, you have to come up with more and more justifications. Your earlier work is closer to the sort of academic model of longer chapters, yeah. as, as you point out. But I just, I just want to reference one line from your recent view in The Economist. The writer says, Mr. Brands lays out the facts in short chapters that bounce along like one of the bare-fisted walloping action <laughs> films that Reagan once starred in. So there's right. something, you know, you are writing for a larger audience and you're bringing more people, you're bringing more citizens into the fold in history, which is a deeply valuable project. And one of the ways, as you say, you do do that is through these quick chapters. But then when you think about academic history, I think a lot of the images that people have in their minds is of those long volume works of American history, an, an American history in, in seven volumes. And of course, you, you haven't written one of those, but what you have done is you've written a lot of books that have, in effect, been a history of America. And I'm just... Well, I'm in fact, yes, Joe, it's, it's more than yeah. simply in effect. About 20 years ago now, I went to a book publisher, a mainstream trade press, with the idea that I was going to write a six-volume history of the United States. And the publisher just laughed at me. He says, nobody does that. Nobody reads that stuff. Nobody writes that stuff. And just forget about it. And so I, I didn't forget about it. I put it aside briefly. And I, ah, that's too bad. I was kind of discouraged. But I didn't stay discouraged very long. And I had this idea that I was actually going to write this series. But it was going to be kind of a guerrilla history of the United States because it was going to take the form of biographies. And I knew that people would read biographies. People buy biographies when they won't buy history. A lot of people have an unfortunate memory of a high school history class. That might be the last history class they took. And they remember that it was, they think of it as dry memorization of stuff that didn't mean anything to them. But people would buy and read biographies. So I thought, well, you know, biography, every biography is a life in times. And you can make a biography into a history by just sort of amping up the times. So my Reagan book, in fact, is the sixth and final volume in my history of the United States in the form of biographies. And so I wrote about Benjamin Franklin for the 18th century and Andrew Jackson for the early 19th century. And then Ulysses Grant, the middle of the 19th century, Theodore Roosevelt, early 20th century, Franklin Roosevelt, culminating in Ronald Reagan. So there is, in fact, sort of a method to all of this. I want to get us onto the track that that we were getting on, which is Reagan, the political compromiser, because I yeah. think it has a lot to do with what's going on right now in our current political situation. And I want to get at that first by asking, you have written a great deal on American history. We at the Howenstein Center have, as one of our central aims, the pursuit of common ground. Is there is there common ground or could there be common ground between Democrats and Republicans? Uh, since you do have such an extensive knowledge of not just American history, but the history of American leadership and the presidency. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in times of political crisis or political stalemate, have there been great leaders of common ground, great presidents who have laid out common ground, and has that been uh, necessary? In fact, no, it has not been necessary. In okay. fact, I would go so far as to say this, that Reagan might be the president who best exemplifies the use of the common ground, but Reagan is not considered one of the very greatest presidents. And the two greatest presidents, in American history by the consensus of historians and political scientists are Abraham Lincoln and Franklin Roosevelt. And those two govern not by consensus at all. They govern by the fact that they had overwhelming majorities of their party in Congress. And that was a function of the crises through which the country was going. So the Southern Democrats left the country 
leaving the Republicans in charge during the Civil War. So Lincoln was able to get the Republican program through. With Franklin Roosevelt, the Republican Party had been discredited by this great stock market crash and the Great Depression. And so Roosevelt had rubber stamp majorities in both houses of Congress. And so he could just sort of ram mm. through the Democratic program. And the New Deal passed with almost no Republican support. But Reagan is different because Reagan did not have that obvious crisis. And Reagan's initiatives demonstrated the ability of a president to marshal support from both parties. Reagan's most important successes domestically, certainly, uh, during his presidency came with substantial Democratic votes. So the, the Reagan Democrats were crucial in passing Reagan's tax and spending bills in 1981, in his reform of Social Security in 1983, in his reform of the tax code and immigration in 1986. Now, that was partly Reagan's doing. Reagan could appeal across party lines, but it was also a function of, I'm afraid, a different political time than we live in now. Until the 1960s, both political parties, both major political parties, were ideological coalitions. So there were liberal Republicans as well as conservative Republicans. There were conservative Democrats as well as liberal Democrats. So when Reagan was president, he could reach across party lines to those conservative Democrats, right. and they could sign on with his program. Nowadays, largely as a result of Lyndon Johnson's embrace of civil rights reform on behalf of the National Democratic Party, which essentially caused conservative Southern Democrats to become Republicans, the two parties have sifted out. So these days in politics, if you are a conservative, you're a Republican. If you're a liberal, you're a Democrat. And so that twain is not meeting anymore. Mm -hmm. And add to this the fact that with the use of computers, exit polls and the like, it is possible for political parties to generate almost absolutely safe congressional districts so that if you are a Republican defending your seat in almost any congressional district in the country, you don't have to even worry about Democrats. You simply have to worry about the Republican who's going to challenge you in the primaries, probably from the right. So the two parties have been sifted out ideologically, and the incentives pull them away from each other. It makes bipartisanship a lot harder than it was during the Reagan years, a lot harder than it was even before that. Well, that's that's very interesting. I, as we were talking about before, you know, a lot of presently, a lot of Republicans have used Reagan's name in terms of his status as a conservative icon, as a guy who stuck to his principles, but I do, you know, you pointed out in a, a previous lecture that James Baker, Reagan's chief of staff and then secretary of treasury has, has said about Reagan and his actual penchant for political compromise that if, if Reagan said it once, he said it 10,000 times, I would rather get 80% of what I want than go over the cliff with my flags flying, which is, I think right now, and I, I'm just going to go out on a limb and sort of say that that is not the um, attitude right now uh, in these in these primaries and caucuses it's a, it's actually i would wear as a badge of honor the uh, action of going off the cliff uh, before compromising with that the that's other true side. but it's important to remember that we are still in the election season right. we're not in the governing season and reagan as a candidate didn't announce in advance you know what i'm going to accept 80% of what i wanted no he says i'm going to go for the whole thing reagan understood there's a difference though between giving speeches and governing. Mm -hmm. There's a difference between being a candidate and being president. And in fairness to the current candidates, none of them have been president. And so we don't know exactly what they would be like as president. But, but it is the case that, well, certainly within the Democratic Party, excuse me, sir, certainly within the Republican Party, there has for, well, since before, when, be, since Reagan came on the scene in the early 1960s, 
there has been this battle for the soul of the Republican Party. And the question is, what is the role of conservatism? And should conservatives maintain their principles unsullied by compromise at all? Or should they do what Reagan did, hold out your conservative principles, but realize that getting there is an incremental process? You, you don't get them all at once. And if you get 80% of what you're asking for, that's big progress. And you should be praised for the 80% you got rather than criticized for the 20% that you had to give up. One other thing, and that is Reagan, Reagan was a firm believer in his principles, but he also believed that other people had a right to their opinions. When Reagan was trying to sell one of his legislative packages, he would call people up. He would explain, this is what we propose. This is why we're doing it. I hope you can support us. But he didn't demonize the other side. He didn't think any less of them for holding to their own principles. Reagan understood that in a pluralist democracy, even if you've had a big victory, he was reelected in 1984, 60% of the vote. Well, there's 40% out there that has their own opinions and the right to their opinions, and they need to be heard. They have to contribute. One of the things Reagan did recognize was that if you're going to be an effective president, you have to have a credible claim on being president of all the people. You can't simply be president of the Republican Party. And so he, he made efforts to bring people in. Because he was an attractive individual, because he had a kind of appeal, he could tell jokes, he could make people feel good about America. He, he had that ability to draw people in. Even people who disliked his policies didn't, like, didn't dislike Reagan. Reagan was an attractive figure rather than a polarizing figure individually. So, and, and he is noted for English, you've, you've, you've used this term before, but a sort of fusionist conservatism and that he was able to bring together a lot of these different sort of factions in the right. Republican Party. Yeah, and it helped Reagan. It helped him politically in that the issues that he was most interested in as a conservative were political and economic issues. Mm. They weren't social issues. And in politics and economics, it's easier to compromise. So if you want a tax cut that's going to take tax the top tax rate down to 25 percent, if you get it down to 29 percent the way Reagan did, that's pretty good. You take that deal. And you can compromise on those kind of issues. It's harder to compromise on social issues on gay marriage. It's harder to compromise on abortion. And Reagan said the right things on those issues, but those weren't why he went into politics. And so he said the right things, but he didn't make big issues of them. I think the Republican Party has made more of the social conservative mm -hmm. element than was the case in Reagan's time. So even Reagan would have a hard time defending some of his actions. Well, so would you say then that the current age of Reagan may be fracturing right now with the rise of Donald Trump and with the sort of um, many uh, candidates right now and, and in fact many of the so-called establishment candidates like uh, Jeb Bush really aren't getting the attention that perhaps they would have gotten eight, four years ago. Um, do you think that uh, the age of Reagan is currently fracturing? Do you think that this fusion of conservatism is, is now? I will be the first to admit that one of the reasons I divide the 20th century and the early 20th and early 21st century into what I call the age of Roosevelt, that is Franklin Roosevelt, and the age of Reagan is that I've written books about those two. Or, or maybe I wrote the books about the two because of that. But basically, the age of Roosevelt is the age when people looked on government as the solver, the solution to problems. The age of Reagan is when people look at government as the problem mm. itself. And that's a really shorthand way of saying that you are a liberal if you think that government can solve problems. So government is the solution. You're conservative if you think that government is the problem. 
And I would suggest that when Reagan articulated that explicitly in his first inaugural address, where he said, in this present moment, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem itself. And I think that that is an attitude that has been absorbed by people all across the political spectrum. You know, there is Bernie Sanders on the Democratic left who's advocating a big expansion of government programs. But Hillary Clinton is not advocating any great, nothing like, for example, the Great Society of the 1960s, nothing like the New Deal. So in, in that regard, I think we are still in the age of Reagan. There is this deep skepticism of government. And even establishment candidates like Hillary Clinton is sort of having to run away from her connection to the establishment. Now, that's, again, we're in the campaign season. When somebody gets elected and inaugurated, then they're part of the establishment. Then they have to see, we have to see what they can do. And I will say this, that President Obama has managed to put into place the Affordable Care Act, you know, a big new government program. But the fact that there's only been one and that it has been fighting for its political life since passage in 2010 suggests that, okay, maybe the age of Reagan is starting to wane, but it's still got some life in it. And I think we'll know more after the 2016 election and maybe and especially after whoever gets inaugurated in January 2017 has had a chance to show what he or she does as president. You bring up Bernie Sanders, and I, I do want to ask, the other day we were talking about how this may be the first time in American history, and I want to get your sense of this, when uh, the two parties have really been electrified at the same time by populists. You have Sanders on the left and Trump on the right. What do, what do you make of this current situation? Is it unique in American history? Well, I cannot remember a time when there was a populist movement of left and right simultaneously. What this tells me is that there is broad dissatisfaction with the status quo. Formerly, when there was broad dissatisfaction with the status quo, it tended to point in a single direction. Now it's pointing in two opposite directions. So Bernie Sanders wants to expand the role of government. Tea Party types want to shrink the role of government. But they're both feeling disenfranchised. They both feel that the country does not work for them. Now, the fact that they're pointing in different directions suggests to me that probably nothing much is going to happen. In one sense, as much as we criticize the American political system, I think it happens to reflect quite well the split in the American electorate. And half the country thinks government ought to do more. Half the country thinks the government ought to do less. And when that's the situation among voters, then the best thing for the government to do is to do nothing at all, to remain in gridlock. It would be a dysfunctional political system if it allowed one side with just a marginal advantage over the other side to ram through an entire political agenda. That is one of the, I'll call it the geniuses of the American political system. In parliamentary systems, if you get 51% of the vote, you form a government. And since they, in a parliamentary system, it's typically a unified government, whoever claims the prime ministership, whoever has the majority, rams through the agenda. And so you get lurches from one side to the other, much more radical in, in parliamentary systems than in the American system. American, American system is tilted toward the status quo. Bill, could you please address the fact that we can, as a country, elect a Democratic president, and yet so many red states have a Republican governor, a Republican legislature? You talked a little bit about the cult of the presidency yeah. behind that. <clears throat> yeah. I think that the presidency is a, a very unique office in American political life because people will vote for or against presidential candidates based on how those individuals make them feel. 
What they think they're doing is they're voting for a prophet. They're voting for a uh, someone who will embody something about themselves. It's an emotional vote, I think, much more than votes for governor, votes for a member of the city council. I think when people choose individuals to local and state office, they tend to be much more hard-headed. They say, okay, what can this person accomplish? It's almost like hiring a carpenter. You know, what's the background? What can the carpenter do? But when we vote for president, it's really more of how does this person make me feel about the country? And America is this country that is unique in history in that it is this essentially, you know, voluntary country. It was created as an idea. People become Americans because they came to America with the exception of the relatively small number of surviving Native Americans. They came here from somewhere else. Most voluntarily, slaves not, but nonetheless, you know, you're German if you can trace your German roots back, way back into history. But America was this idea and this ideal. And we have often lacked unifying institutions, unifying symbols. And the presidency, the president, is the one that we all look to to unify us. And a president who can say that he's bringing the country together is someone who has this kind of appeal and who has a kind of political power. But it's a very different thing. Nobody has a problem, I think, with choosing a technocrat, in essence, for a governor or a mayor. But we don't choose technocrats as presidents because they don't give it this warm feeling we want to have about our country, about the American dream. And so I'm really not surprised that there is this separation between what happens at the national level and what happens at state and local levels. You've been talking, obviously, about the presidency, and of course, you've had the opportunity to um, uh, to meet with President Obama on a number of occasions with some other historians. I'm just wondering, what was that, for, for our listeners, what was that like? Well, I will say that it was, first of all, a great honor to be part of this small group that was invited to speak with the president. I can't speak in detail of what we talked about. The meetings are off the record. But I will say this, that I, as a writer and a teacher of history, I felt warm feelings toward this president who thought that history was important enough to basically have this ongoing history seminar in the White House because I cannot think of another president who would have taken the time to do this. Uh, so here's the president who considers himself sort of the current holder of an office that has held, been held by distinguished, important individuals before him, and he wanted to know what he could learn from those individuals. So that's part of it. I will say this, that as a biographer of presidents, I was intrigued by the idea of actually spending time up close with a president. I've written, most of the people that I've written about, I spent no time with. In many cases, they were dead before I turned to write about them. So I would have loved to spend, have some face time with Benjamin Franklin. Needless to say, he was long dead before I got to him. And there are certain things that you can learn. I don't know, for example, what Benjamin Franklin's voice sounded like. I don't know what his presence was in the room. I had seen President Obama, as other presidents, on television, and I wondered, so how much of the television image is mirrored in the personal image? Is the president that I have shaken hands with a number of times and had dinner with, uh, does that person differ from the public persona? And there are certain presidents for whom that is true. Lyndon Johnson's speeches to the public were nothing like the private Lyndon Johnson. I'd never met Lyndon Johnson, but from everything I've known, people who knew him. Whereas with President Obama, what you see on TV is pretty much what you get in the, the private sphere as well. Well, I think that's it from me. Thanks very much, Bill, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Keep up the good work. 
That was H.W. Brands, the Jack S. Blanton Chair of History at the University of Texas at Austin, and author most recently of Reagan, The Life. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Travis Wheeler edits the podcast and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. For more information about Ralph and our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at JoeHoganCGI. I don't just tweet about episodes of the podcast, but also about a variety of issues having to do with politics, culture, and common ground. Again, thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been another episode of Common Ground.